12. Exodus chapter 12. We're going to pick it up here tonight where we left off last time. Uh, we're studying this section of Exodus, Exodus chapters 12 and 13, talking about the Passover, the Passover. And we have looked at Passover instituted. That's Exodus chapter 12, first 20 verses of the chapter is all about the, uh, the institution of Passover where God gives to Moses the institution. He gives them the various sum of, of the various laws. Others will come later. But many of the various laws having to do with the, the festival of Passover. Then, of course, Passover is implemented. That's verses 21 to 42 of Exodus chapter 12. We got... Oh, about halfway through those notes last time. So we're going to pick it up there this evening. And then we'll deal probably next week, if we're able to finish all this, then we'll get to next. We're, we're going to talk about the date of the Exodus. That's in and of itself its own controversial subject, but an important uh, matter when it comes to biblical inerrancy. And then once we get there, we'll get to the end of chapter 12, into chapter 13, and we'll talk about the Passover further regulations that are bestowed upon the Passover uh, in that section. So if you're with us last time, this is what we introduced as we're looking at the middle section of Exodus chapter 12. We're looking at from verse 21 to verse 42. We're looking first at Moses instructing the people. We didn't quite finish those notes. We'll pick it up there this evening in verse 24. Um, but then we'll see after Moses instructs the people, we see Yahweh smites the firstborn. That's the actual 10th plague descends. The exodus kicks off uh, with then Pharaoh initiating the exodus, verse 31 and following. All right, so we have a number of things to look at here this evening in this, these couple of paragraphs. So again, we'll see how far we make it. But last time we got verses 21, 2, 3, and then we just had a fun time talking about the destroyer, right? Uh, and so we, we had a good time talking about that. But our goal tonight is to pick it up in verse 24, and we'll notice this, uh, just a couple of things that we weren't able to get to last time, where Moses emphasizes the future keeping of the Passover festival. All right, so if you got your Bible, let's read from verse 24, and we'll go down to verse 28. All right, the Bible says this. He says, and you shall observe this thing for an ordinance to you and to your sons forever, and it shall come to pass when you become to the land which the Lord will give you, according as he has promised, that you shall keep this service. We'll come back to that term. He says, you'll keep this service, and it shall come to pass, when your children shall say unto you, what mean you by this service, that you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses, and the people bowed the head and worshipped. And the children of Israel went away and did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. Pause there. Now, again, as we look at this, this section, uh, again, first, what I want to draw your attention to, we just didn't get to this at the tail end of last week, but notice in particular verse 25, as Moses is forecasting not only what they are to do now, but how they are to observe this thing, as he says in verse 24, as an ordinance to you and your sons forever. In other words, he's looking to the future uh, fulfillment of this, this command as they continue to keep Passover generation after generation after generation, but he specifically calls it a service in verse 25. Now again, recall this is one of the key words in the book of Exodus, if you recall this. This is why I want to just pause, remind you of this, draw your attention to it, is that this, this word appears many times throughout the book, and it was used first in chapter 1 about how uh, the, the children of Israel were enslaved and they were in or under service to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And yet God predicted to Moses the burning bush that they would be delivered from Egypt and then they would serve Yahweh. Same word. And this, this word means, it's, it's translated typically the word serve, service, sometimes translated worship. But the idea is that we are devoted we go from being subjugated right, in, uh, under Pharaoh in Egypt to the children of Israel now being devoted in service voluntarily to Yahweh. And so that, that idea is we've already camped on it several times. We've highlighted that. But notice that this is one of those passages where it comes up. And Moses in particular is talking about the Passover as an act of commemoration where they are to remember what God has done. That act of commemoration is worship. It's, a, it's one of the means by which they show their service to the Lord, that they're voluntarily submitting to 
Yahweh as their God. Does that make sense? So that's one of the big themes of going from service to Pharaoh to service to Yahweh. But notice he says in particular that they are to keep this service. Now that verb in particular is used a number of places in your Old Testament to talk about the idea of, of observing something, obeying something. But it's a covenant word. It's a covenant word. We see it in particular back in Genesis chapter 17, Genesis 18, where God commands that they are to keep his covenant. And then he promises to keep his covenant with Abraham. In other words, that word, it's a covenant word, typically when we see it in the Torah, those first, you know, the books of Moses, first five books of the Bible. And so it's important that when he, he's, he's saying, he's, he's infusing significance into the Passover by saying, by keeping this, you are showing your covenant loyalty, right? Now, we've talked about this a little bit before, but what are, what are the New Testament equivalents to this? In the Old Covenant, Old Testament, you have a number of things that you are to keep or observe to be covenant markers that you are participating in one of the covenants, whether it's you know Abrahamic covenant or Mosaic covenant in this case. But what are some what are the New Testament counterparts to that? There we go. So communion is the primary one, right? Where it's the same sort of language given, First Corinthians chapter eleven. That's right. So it, the Sabbath was the token of the Mosaic Covenant in particular. But uh, you have circumcision for the Abrahamic Covenant. You have uh, Sabbath and other things like Passover that are going to be associated with the Mosaic Covenant. What's interesting is this, you know, Passover, though we typically associate because it is given under Moses, it's technically associated with the Abrahamic Covenant because it was promised, right, in the Abrahamic Covenant in Genesis 15. And now it's here being fulfilled. All right, so... Um, but, we, but in the New Covenant context, as Gordy pointed out, you really have two ordinances, right? Baptism and the Lord's table. Uh, the Lord's table being the more frequently observed, right? Regular observance. But it's, it, in a sense, and again, we've talked about this in the past. I've given a whole sermon to this idea in past uh, you know, lectures. But that is our version of a New Covenant renewal, in other words, if you do not participate, and the Bible doesn't tell us, you know, it says as often as you do it, Jesus said, right? Do it in remembrance of me. He doesn't necessarily command that we do it every day or every week or every month. But we are to do it regularly. Why? Because it's a covenant renewal ceremony, in a sense. We are swearing our allegiance afresh to, uh, to Christ and our belief in him and our remembrance of what he's done, right? Absolutely. That's, that's definitely kind of participating, if you will, in the covenant. Uh, it's not given the same language as far as, you know, the, the ordinance, the covenant uh, renewal sort of thing. But, I, but you're right. It's part of, that's all part of participating in the body of Christ in the new covenant. Absolutely. But that which we use to kind of swear our oath of allegiance and renew that, specifically the Lord's table. Baptism. And then the Lord's table is the, what we frequently then do thereafter. Yeah, you got a thought? Then I'll go back. I was just thinking in the New Testament where it talks about Jesus telling that if they love him and the Father, then the Father will accept them. Is that a type of covenant that God is promising he will take them to be his children if they follow Jesus? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so... So, uh, great. Just remember this. This is a, we really hammer this in our Psalter series, but the 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 fundamental it's in Hebrew, but the the fundamental word underneath covenant is chesed, right? You kind of gotta sound like you're hawking a loogie, you know? It's kind of like a chesed, right? That's how you say it. But it's translated typically love, uh, sometimes loyal love. Uh, sometimes steadfast love or loving kindness, something along those lines. I, my favorite definition is loyal love, um, just because it, I remember it well and it's alliterated and I'm, I like that. But, but the point is, loyal love, is, it's, it's profound in that it's the covenant. When God makes a covenant, that's the, the characteristic of God that's most at work. Meaning, first, that God voluntarily condescends. He comes down out of pure love to make a promise to us. He obligates himself to us 
He did not have to. But he does it voluntarily. That's love. So, but then once he makes that promise, he makes that relationship, that covenant, then now he will be loyal to that for eternity, right? That's the idea of loyal love, right? So in other words, it's kind of two sides of the same coin, but those are, it's a complex idea, but that's the word that comes up over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament for God's covenant-making character. And that's exactly what Again, it's Greek in the New Testament, but it's, it's, it's undergirding, you know, that idea from the Old Testament is what's undergirding those New Testament passages. Exactly. And are they really looked at as covenants then in the New Testament? Because it's undergirding? Yeah, it is, yeah, it is because we are called participants in the New Covenant. Yeah, that's the exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. So it is called a covenant in the New Testament. Yeah. So then it doesn't mean the same thing when, they, when the New Testament teaches us that we are still to keep the Sabbath? So the Sabbath is its own sermon in a sermon, because there's lots of debate on that, is because the Sabbath predated the Mosaic Covenant, right? So there's, and there's lots of debate on this. Let me give you the summary. And then, did you have a hand up? We'll go back to Bob after this. Um, So the Sabbath deserves its own lecture. Uh, But... The Sabbath finds its roots in Genesis 2, right? So in the the creative week. Um, So the debate on it is, because it's part of the Ten Commandments as well, right? Not only is it part of the Ten Commandments, it's elevated to the special status. And in Exodus 31, it's elevated to the special status of being the token of the Mosaic Covenant. And remember, a token is, you know, like the wedding ring, right? It's, it's, it's It's a... outward visible symbol of an inward truth. In other words, you know, that, that concept of um, the, my, my vows of faithfulness I made to my wife, I'm showing the world that I have those vows of faithfulness through the wedding ring. The wedding ring doesn't save me or, or you know, make me married. It just shows the world that I am. Baptism functions the same way in the new covenant. Um, Lord's table, same way. It's an outward, he says, you show your belief in the Lord's death till he come. Um, the Sabbath no longer has that level of significance because the, in the new covenant, the token is baptism in the Lord's table. Um, we have, for instance, Noah, the covenant God made with Noah. What was the token of that? The rainbow. Exactly. So every covenant will typically come along with a token, right? An outward evidence of it. For the Mosaic Covenant, it was the Sabbath keeping. Now, do we as, as believers keep the Sabbath today? Boy, whole denominations have been split over that question, right? Because first, say, well, people say, well, the law doesn't apply, right? Well, but it predated the Mosaic Law, right? So there's a debate on that. Um, I, I think Paul gives us the, the clearest answer in Romans 14, saying that it's, it's a, you, it, some will observe it to the Lord, others will not. In other words, there's a mix of Jew-Gentile, and there were a lot of Jews that were coming out of the Mosaic Covenant, and they're saying, hey, this is our symbol of faithfulness. Keep the, keep the Sabbath. He says, then keep it, right? But then you got Gentiles coming in, and, he's, and they say, well, we're not keeping the Sabbath. And he says, you know, keep Sabbath. In other words, the way it was ordained in the Mosaic Law is no longer applicable. Correct. Uh, they, you mean you're talking about modern Jews or what? I'm sorry. Or us. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with exactly because that falls in the same category because Paul's talk. Yep. So in other words, we've gone from, from Passover to Easter and from the Sabbath to the Lord's day. So again, this is where fun applicational (laughs) point, um, where does, how does the Sabbath apply to us? You know, cause, because most theologians, not all, but many will still try to carry it over and say there's a principle there, right, that we apply in a, in a modern New Covenant sense, and they'll take it and they'll apply it to Sunday. Um, very possible, right? I mean, it's like I think we're commanded to gather. The early church gathered on Sunday. I, I think it's, you know, I think it's important for us to maybe make a distinction, you know, that Sabbath is technically Saturday, and you don't have a New Testament command that swaps it from Saturday to Sunday. 
But the principle, I think, is powerful because we're still commanded to, to regularly gather. He says, don't forsake the assembling yourselves together, Hebrews chapter 10. That was done historically on Sunday. Why? Exactly. That's when Christ rose from the dead. So that's why we meet on Sunday and commemorate that. But many of the early church, earliest members of the early church that were Jewish, they met on both, Saturday and Sunday, right? So that's, guess where we get the two-day weekend? Yep. That's how it works out into modern Western culture is because it comes from a Judeo-Christian worldview, and so it was an honoring of both days. Yeah. So, and not everybody does that, but, you know, Western society that honors that two-day weekend, yeah, that's where we actually get it. It's kind of profound. Yeah, Bob, and then I'll come back. Yeah. I was just thinking when you were talking about 1224, where up to that point, you know, the, um, the Jews had gotten out of, you know, you know the, what the plagues were affecting the Egyptians and stuff, but with the, the thing in the blood in the door, they, it's like a show, it's a mercy acknowledgement where that at this particular point, they needed to put the blood in the door so that they would get skin, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, uh, I think I'm tracking with you, but that's where, that's what God commanded them to do in order that that was their token. Yeah. yeah. Show you mercy, and you need to put the blood in the door, and you know, and that I showed you mercy. Yes, yep, so like commemorate, yeah. remember from there forward. Mercy. Absolutely. And, and we actually talked about it a little bit last, I think you were, you were sick last week. Yeah, but we're gone. But last week, we, we talked a little bit about that very concept, the idea of, of the token of their faith, the outward symbol of their faith being that blood on the door. Yep. And then this is now to be commemorated yearly from here forward. He says, don't forget what God did. And coming back to the question, you know, do Christians have to keep Passover? No. Can we? Absolutely. Should we? Well, you decide, right, for you and your family. But there is great value in, again, remembering what God has done. Exactly, because that's, that's the whole point of a holy day, right, is to commemorate the great acts of God throughout history. So it can, there can be great value to it. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I was thinking of your Genesis 2, where on the seventh day he rested, but he sanctified that day. Mm-hmm. And sanctifying means it makes it holy, and we're supposed to have a holy day. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is, that holy day was not specified then. It was perhaps specified in Deuteronomy as to what that day should be because part of that, those Ten Commandments was you shall rest on that day mm-hmm. and meditate on me mm-hmm. and that you will learn to fear me because you're thinking of me, but right. you're also resting. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the Mosaic law, which then you said becomes not necessarily part of what day you're supposed to celebrate the Sabbath. So, so, in other words, there's room to disagree. This is where it comes to personal, you know, that's where Paul takes it in Romans 14 and he says, you know, each believer needs to stand before the Lord on, on, to observe that day. Exactly. In other words, there are good Christians, i got good friends that, that observe, you know, uh, a Saturday. I still think that because not only it, it predates Mosaic law, but when Jesus comes back, book of Ezekiel, Sabbath, is still central. So, I mean, I, and so I, I think there's something special about the Sabbath day, you know, the S- Saturday. Are we commanded to keep it as a token, you know, of our faithfulness to God? No, that was Mosaic covenant, right? My token is baptism in the Lord's table. The but extension of that argument would be then if I was working Saturday and Sunday and I decided to take Monday as a day of rest, it had to be my day off from work, Mm-hmm. then I would have to devote that day to Christ and resting. That would have to be my Sabbath day. Well, again, that's some will apply it that way. That's but it, Yeah, some will apply it that way, but that's not commanded in the New Testament. 
right? I mean, like, in other words, it's totally fine to apply it that way. That's the, where it's a Romans 14 issue. Are you saying you don't have to apply Sabbath as a Christian? I think the principle of God having governance over all of our time and acknowledging it, absolutely. I think we should have regular seasons of worship and rest. Absolutely. But do we do it on Saturday? Do we do it on Sunday? Do we do it on Monday? That's Romans 14. Paul says, you decide that. Yeah. Absolutely. No, it's a good question, though. And I mean, I, I love this subject. Um, but it's not, I mean, we're dealing with it in 10 minutes, you know, it, it's a hugely, like I said, it's split whole denominations, right? Seventh-day Adventists, right? You ever heard of them? Yeah. You ever Seventh-day Baptists, right? I mean, there's different, <laughs> there's different groups that, be, and because it is, it's a, it's a fascinating issue, right? Which is where, and it was an area of huge controversy in the early Christian church, which is why Paul gives us Romans 14. Yeah, so in the life of Christ, it's another whole issue because Jesus is addressing the false ideas that had been collected by the, you know, the Pharisees primarily, but, you know, the, the legalistic Jews that added to the Sabbath laws that are contained in, in Mosaic Covenant. They added to that multiple laws, I mean, hundreds, right? There's a whole tractate in the Mishnah devoted to it, just page after page after page. And so Jesus comes and he cuts through that. And Jesus never broke the Sabbath, not the biblical Sabbath, but he did break all of their versions of the Sabbath. Does that make sense? Their added rules. He broke those because, and he points that out. He says, these are the traditions of men, right? And then he claims to be like, upon what authority, right? Does Jesus have that authority to, to say what's tradition, what's not? Because he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, right? And when he makes that statement, he's claiming to be the creator of Genesis 1 and 2. Where did the Sabbath come from? You know, and who commanded Israel to keep it? God did. That's right. So he's claim, it's a divine claim when he makes that claim. Yeah. But, but yeah, that's a great question. Is they were trying, because that was their number one tool early on in Jesus' ministry to try and tarnish him and to claim that he was, because what they were trying to do is make him out to be a false prophet. And so they were saying, oh, 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 he broke the Sabbath, so you can't trust him. And Jesus said, no, 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 I didn't break the Sabbath. And he's teaching them what the Sabbath really was. Does that make sense? But he did violate their traditions. And, and I mean, I've shared some of these with you before, but some of these traditions are absolutely insane, right? I mean, like, you weren't allowed to spit on Sabbath because if it hits the ground and rolls, you've dug a furrow, and that's considered plowing. <laughs> All right? That's in the Mishnah, I'm telling you. Uh, you know, a, a woman, so you re, even to this day, they still will go around and they'll, they'll cover mirrors on, you know, Friday night before Sabbath begins. Yeah. Why? Because... If you pass, and it says in, in particular, if a woman passes the mirror and sees a gray hair and plucks it, that's considered harvesting, and it's violating the Sabbath. All right? In other words, you see what I'm saying? Like, it got pretty bizarre, is, you know, because it says in the Old Testament, don't do work, right? But then they said, well, what is work? And then they just extrapolated endlessly on what that was to the point that, you know, Jesus says, you make... He says the, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You remember that? You know, in other words, they'd made it such this enormous burden that everyone was scared to death of violating the Sabbath, getting kicked out of the synagogue. You know, when Jesus is like, that's not the purpose of it. It was meant to be a day of joy and rest. And, you know, as you described, meditating on God, renewing your covenant faithfulness to God, because that was the token of the Mosaic Covenant. Does that make sense? So it was meant to be a blessing. It was a gift, but they've made it into a burden. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. 
I, I Absolutely. I those, those rules and regulations, 637, whatever they are, never applied to the women serving the men on Sunday, however. That wasn't work. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> on Saturday. On Friday, but they had to serve it. Somebody had to serve it. That wasn't work. Yeah, that's right. Oh, sorry, it wasn't work. That's right. Convenient how that works. <laughs> well, they, get, they get around that here because they hire Gentiles to serve them. Yeah, true. It's true. Yeah, because we did it. Yes, yes. Simone would know. <laughs> you worked with a, a Jew, right? Right for a while? There's a Jewish summer lodge in the, in the Catskills. Oh, interesting. But they're very they kosher. So, okay, so they wouldn't work Sabbath, but hire the Gentiles to do it. Yeah, see, Gentiles come in handy somewhere. No. <laughs> no, it's true. But, I mean, back to application, that's where Paul ranks it with the Romans 14. You know, that's why he gives us Romans 14. He says it, was, it had to do with diet and days of observance. You know, that was why he wrote that chapter of the Bible. And so that's where we as a modern, you know, modern being New Covenant church, that's that's our rule book on observing the Sabbath. So are you allowed? Sure. You know, but it's not, it's not, yeah, it's a matter of the heart. It's not mandatory as your token for your covenant, right? The new covenant token is, so table, you know, baptism, Lord's table. next Sunday and your church is completely empty, it's okay? Well, now you're violating <laughs> Hebrews 10, so, you know. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Don't forsake the gathering. Exactly. That's right. And traditionally, we've, you know, done it Sundays. But when Christians were running, you know, I, I've been reading up on church history. You know, like when Christians were running from, you know, persecution of the Romans and they were hiding in the catacombs. Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't have, you know, a regular Sunday meeting place. You know, I mean, they, they would meet whenever they could, wherever they could in order to avoid capture. <laughs> but what did they do? They kept the commandment to not forsake the assembling, you know, but they risked their lives mm-hmm. to to obey that command yeah. yeah hugely wow what an example for us right but anyways kind of like covid oh you had to bring that up no <laughs> i'm with you man i'm with you i'm with you amen all right any other thoughts on that man we got 10 minutes left, right? Oh, no. I know, doggone it. Okay, well, let's, let's at least finish the paragraph. So where was I? So verse, uh, we were talking about keeping the service, right? That's verse 25. But verse 26 to 28, we see the, the scenario posed, right? The child asking the why question. And this is, of course, something very practical because if you've ever had kids or grandkids, then why this? Why that? Why this? Why that? Um, but Moses is telling them, hey, this is important because it's giving you, you know, an opportunity. In other words, this is one of the values of ceremony or ritual, a repetitive cycle, whether it is, you know, a, a holy day that you're keeping on the calendar, whether it is a, you know, a memorial, a monument that is built, right? We'll have a number of examples of this. We talked about this a little bit, uh, I forget if it was last week or maybe I think the week before we talked about that. When we looked at the word memorial in verse 14, it says this day, speaking of Passover, will be unto you as a memorial. And that's kind of what Bob was talking about earlier. The idea of he says, don't ever forget what God has done here, but keep remembering. And so this idea is, of course, it's meant to prompt questions. And so he says, hey, when you have this, in answer to this question, Moses says that the Israelites are to rehearse the events of Passover. And that's what he gives us basically in one verse, verse 27. He says, this is what you shall say. It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. In other words, that's a one-verse summary of the Passover event. He says, this is what you're supposed to tell your children. Now, of course, if you know much about Jewish history, this question-answer format that Moses here proposes actually becomes codified in no, what is known as the Haggadah. All right? If you've ever been to a Passover Seder, particularly an Orthodox Jewish um, Passover Seder, they still do this to this day. There's a question-answer format that, that they, they use to guide through the elements of Passover. And that's, they get that from this passage, and others like it. But it's the idea, and there's lots of, there's lots of practical ramifications of that. 
right? He will say later in Deuteronomy 6 that we are to instruct our children, right? Whether we're walking in the way or sitting down or lying down, use every opportunity to instruct our children. And if you've ever been a parent or grandparent, you get that. Sometimes your most profound, meaningful conversations you have with your kids were totally unplanned. You know what I'm saying? They just come up with a random question sometime. And it's like, and, but they're inquiring and they're so, they're hot, their heart is soft at that moment. And you're like, hey, you know, this is a great opportunity to, to engage with this in a, in a conversation. And I'm telling you, I mean, my wife and I have mourned this, but our kids, it's like they, they get more talkative right around bedtime, probably because they want to avoid bedtime. You know what I'm saying? And it's like this battle, right? It's like, oh, I want to you know, develop this relationship with my child and I don't want to stay up till 1 a.m. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, <laughs> but, but that idea of, he says, seize the moment and take advantage of the opportunity to teach your children. And so he gives them that sort of scenario. So what happens next? Well, verse 29 and 30, let's read it. It says, and it came to pass that at midnight, the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne and the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the cattle. And, and Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where there was not one dead. In other words, after Moses rehearses the instructions of what they're to do, then he records the actual descent of the 10th plague, if you want to call it that. It's the Yahweh smiting the firstborn. That's recorded in verse 29 and 30. Now, as per usual in our study of the book of Exodus, the actual record of the event itself is shorter than the description leading up to it, right? That's been uh, so far the normal format for how Moses has been editing, compiling this section, etc. But we saw like a whole chapter back in chapter 11 given to the announcement that this was coming. Now, when he says it happens, it's given two verses. But what is given is, of course, the rather climactic poetic justice that we have seen building all throughout. The tenth plague is the final plague, but it's the ultimate example of poetic justice. That is the first oppressive pharaoh that we discovered all the way back in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, had, with the complicity of his fellow Egyptians at all levels, caused the death of all Israelite baby boys in every family, right back in chapter 1, verse 16 to 22. But now what we see is the pharaoh uh, of the plagues, his grandson and grandchildren of the original oppressing generation experienced a corresponding disaster, namely the death of the firstborn of every family of the Egyptians. In other words, we're seeing that God is giving this sense of poetic justice and divine retribution. Now, this in particular, we've already talked about the significance of the firstborn, how God was taking uh, what the cultural significance of that firstborn, how it was uh, not only you know integrated, really the, fa- the woven into the fabric of society is what I'm trying to say. The firstborn was so key to Egyptian society. All ancient societies, most Egypt, uh, ancient societies honored that right of primogenitor. But in this particular instance, it was more than just a, you know, an attack upon their society or their gods. That is also true. But it was also this example of poetic justice or divine retribution. Now, it is worth noting that this was not a case of returning evil for evil. In other words, evil for evil would have been accomplished if the Israelites themselves had figured out a way to kill the Egyptian babies after having come into a position of power over their former oppressors. That's not what happened. Rather, this is a a case of divine retribution. This is justice being meted out to those who deserved it a judgment against an entire society and their absurd religious beliefs that led them to practice the horrible treatment they had given the Israelites in the past, thinking it was appropriate. So this is God's divine retribution upon that prior policy. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And that's an important distinction to make. right? Where this And Paul, and we'll, for sake of time, have to end with this um, because we have an, another bunch of things to get to that we don't have time for, but recognize, oh, no apology necessary. No, no, no. No, this is good. We, this is why we take questions. I love questions. Um, but it is worthy of note, divine retribution. Um, this principle is what gives us the ability to 
live life for the glory of God. Do you remember Romans chapter 12? Remember this? Let's, let's end with this. Go ahead and pop over there, and then we'll, we'll end with this. And then next time, we'll come back, and we'll pick it up here and talk about uh, some possible archaeological discoveries that we found that, that may corroborate the 10th plague and the death of the firstborn. So we'll come back and talk about that next week. But Romans chapter 13, or I'm sorry, 12, <clears throat> Romans 12, this is a really important concept of this idea of divine retribution because it's, it's incredibly practical. It arms us with the ability to obey this command. Look at Romans 12, verse uh, 17. He says, recompense to no man evil for evil. In other words, that's what, again, do you see the distinction we're making? This is not an evil for evil. It's not that God uh, gave the Israelites power you know, over the Egyptians and then they went to slay them. Rather, this was divine retribution. So he says, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, verse 18, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, the promise of divine retribution is what enables us to not repay evil for evil. Does that make sense? Exactly. We repay evil with good. Why? Because we are leaving the justice up to God. We don't have to take justice in our own hands. Rather, we can leave it up to God. One of the big charges, and, and, and I think this is worthy you know, to discuss, obviously, because it's in the Bible. Everything's worthy to discuss if it's in the Bible. But this has come under charge by even modern evangelicals that are trying to undermine the idea of God's justice and His wrath. And there's modern evangelicals that are still claiming the title evangelical, but they are denying that God has wrath. And because they think that wrath is somehow beneath God. And... One of their arguments is that if God is a God of wrath, then we would, you know, emulate him, that it would ruin society because we would all emulate him and be full of wrath. That's their, that's one of their arguments. Now, what's, again, if you're not careful, you're like, oh, well, man, maybe they have a point, right? And it's like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Exactly. The Bible actually arms us with the reality that first God is a God of wrath. Now he's slow to anger. He is abounding in, in mercy and steadfast love, but he will by no means acquit the guilty. Right? That's what he says in, in Exodus 34. So he is a God of wrath, and yet it's that very wrath. In other words, their charge, the opposite is actually true. They're charging that if God's a God of wrath, it's going to make us more wrathful. Exactly. It's like, but think about it. This one's actually saying, because God's a God of wrath, I don't have to be. In other words, if we genuinely let God be God, and we let Him do His job, then I don't have to be full of wrath. I don't have to take vengeance upon everybody else. And rather, in other words, again, these, these, these people will go so far to say that the Judeo-Christian worldview is what gave us World War I, World War II, all the deaths of, this, you know, of the 1900s. Every major war has been a result of the Judeo-Christian worldview. And it's like, no, no, no. You know, they're, they're, they're rewriting history. They're you know, twisting the Scripture because Paul says that it's actually belief in divine retribution that God's going to take care of it, that lets me not have to. I leave it to God. Doesn't that also go with, you can't, again, you can't know good without evil? So God shows us that his love, that his wrath also shows us his love? Absolutely. That's absolutely true. To know his love if it wasn't for him keeping away evil and all the stuff that he can't tolerate, so he has to mm -hmm. That's right. Amen. Amen. Preach it, my friend. That's, that's exactly right. His wrath is actually a vital component of his love. It's not at odds with his love. Rather, wrath is that which 
he uses to destroy evil and to protect what he loves. That's exactly right. That's good. But, I mean, man, whew. I just, I'm encountering it more and more about, you know, this, and it's just like, wow, you know, this idea that God's wrath is somehow something we need to get over or do away with or erase from the scripture, erase from the gospel. You have one person arguing and then another back come back and just goes on and on and on. If you're in an argument with somebody that's doing stuff and you go back, well, I love you or have a good day, whatever, stop. That's right. They have no comeback. That's right. It's amazing how that works, right? Amen. Heaping coals on their head. Exactly. Returning, how'd you put it? Good for evil. That's it. Exactly. That's the biblical concept. Simone, then we'll go back to Catherine. If yeah. you talk to a Catholic, they will tell you that the God of the Old Testament is not the same God as the New Testament because he was wicked and mean and killed everybody. Yeah. And, and, and the God that they worship is a loving God. Yeah. Oh, it's true. That's why some Christians won't accept God. Well, I don't want to have a God of wrath. My God is going to be a God of love. Exactly. So a good excuse. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Catherine, and then we'll come up here, Lisa. Yes. Yep. She said, she said, doesn't that soften the view of sin? That's absolutely right. Yeah, that's the purpose. Yep. I, I have a, I mean, I, I try to condense it because it's often, you know, in the same vein, people will historically, it's, it's actually one of our test questions, right, for our interview for membership is, do you believe in a literal hell? You know, um, it's a litmus test. Why do we ask that question? It's a litmus test. Because historically, one of the first things to go, if you're, if you're cutting and pasting out of the Bible, one of the first things to go is the doctrine of hell um, because of what we're talking about. But to, again, to, to eject hell from the Bible or to erase God's wrath from the Bible, it's really the, you know, saying the same thing, then you have to have a low view of God, a low view of the Scripture, a low view of sin, a low view of the cross, right? Because if it wasn't, if God wasn't a God of wrath and sin isn't as bad as it was, then why did, right? Because Jesus said, if there's any other way, deliver me from this. But there was no other way, right? I mean, in other words, there's, there's so much intricacy to this discussion, but you're exactly right. It's a low view of sin. It's a soft view of sin when we try to erase wrath. Exactly. Exactly. The power of the blood, the value of the blood is seen in that. Absolutely. Elisa, and then we'll go back. So, uh, over 10 years ago when I was first saved, I read a book by a man named Bob Bell called Love Wins. Yes. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. Yes, I am familiar with that book. And this was his claim was that love wins. God is a God of love. His, His emanating characteristic is love. Which means that a God who loves would never put anybody in eternity in hell, because that would be an evil thing to do. So that, of course, lessens. If we get rid of hell, then we get rid of an actual um, threat over our lives, right? Mm-hmm. So if we get rid of that, then we negate the need for Christ's blood, and That's then right. we open ourselves up to use our soul, which is where it all leads. That's where it goes. Exactly. That's exactly right. No, that's exactly right. And I, yes, I'm with you. I am, I'm familiar with that, that book. book. Yeah, boy, and he made a name for himself Ooh, with that book. Is. Yeah, but, but he's dead wrong. <laughs> so, but he's taken a lot with him. Exactly. And it is. It's, it's a growing movement. But even, like I said, within the evangelical camp, people are starting, you know, and it's, it's all the same thing, doing away with a penal substitutionary atonement view. Right is uh, that it's part of that same movement? Is they're just really trying to erase the idea that there is such a thing as wrath, but without wrath, then ultimately, yeah, we have a soft view of sin. We have a warped view of God's love. We have all sorts of problems that begin to develop and inconsistencies in our theology, etc. Uh, Carl, then I'll come up. Yeah, Carl. And also the movement today of God being a bloodthirsty. Yep, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's all part of this. That's right. Yep, yep. I mean, and I've heard the charge. People say that you know God is a God guilty of child sacrifice, mm-hmm. right? And that's what they call the cross. And it's like, whoa. 
Like, what Bible are you reading? You know, it's like, because Jesus went voluntarily, right? It's, I mean, he, he went as our lamb, and it was, and they cooperated in the task. The Father planted, the Father, you know, did plant it, but the Father. Like we had to do all the sacrifices like they did back then? Right. We had to do all the Right? That's right. It puts, exactly, we have a better covenant. Exactly, based on better promises. Yes, ma'am. I was, I was thinking in the 1960s when I was going to an Episcopal church, I was a young woman then, and the teaching was... Still a young woman. Aww. Right, someone write that down. That's good. Okay. Um, there was a whole movement which has even grown into what you were just talking about, but there was no hell, but there was a separation from God. So talk about softening anything about your sin, softening wrath, getting rid of hell itself in a, a lake of fire. Mm-hmm. That was not there. It's just being separated from God. That's, I, that's what I that heard in the 60s, the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Implying there's peace yep. after your death. There's no hell, it just was separation from God. Yeah. Right? No, and it's absolutely right. And, and this is a long history, you know, that it deserves its own lecture. But yeah. it, it all goes back to, I think you used the term progressive Christianity yeah. or liberalism that's coming out of the Enlightenment, you know, the 1600s. And it, but it's all rooted in this idea that my mind, human reason, is more important and more authoritative than the Bible. In other words, if it doesn't make sense to me, I throw it out because I'm smarter than God, right? That's the enlightenment attitude. And it just, whoo, man, we're still gagging on that. Yes. Exactly. That's right. Without the wrath of God or the soft view of sin, you no longer need the gospel. You erase the need for the gospel. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly right. What's that? Or if it hurts your feelings. That's right. You mean throw it out of the Bible if it hurts your feelings yeah. or you don't? Exactly. Yeah, because, oh boy, here I am. I'm, I'm, a, I'm over time. But, but you're right. I mean, you have the enlightenment. Where I, it's the idea of, of rationalism. I'm smarter than God. My mind beats you know, the scripture. Uh, then you have romanticism. If it feels good, do it, yeah. right? And, and then, then you have perfectionism or Nietzsche comes along, says, well, if I can decide it, might makes right. So, it's, it's, so you see man's mind exalted above the Bible, man's emotions exalted above the Bible, and then man's will exalted above the Bible. Exactly. And that's the, the philosophies of the modern age that we are still living with. That is, that's what undergirds modern Western society is these isms that come out of the enlightenment and it is a mess and but what we need to do is cut through that and say and get back to the bible and say what god says goes right and that's what the whole fundamentalist movement and that was trying to get back to the bible sort of mentality and that's our church is in that you know historic vein yes well i was taught over the years that you have to look at scripture in balance because scripture out of balance yeah, that's good. That's right. Back to the Bible. But then look at the Bible in balance. Yeah. That's right. Because any one truth, you push it to an extreme, you become heretical. So you better have a good church. That's right. Good church, good community of believers, keeping each other honest, studying the scripture consistently, recognizing its authority. We're placing ourselves beneath the authority of this book. That's the only thing that will keep us going. That'll keep us on the straight and narrow. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's right. Amen. Amen. Whew. This is fun stuff, guys. Good stuff. Okay. Let's close in prayer. We'll pick it up here next week, and we'll, we'll circle back to the Passover, specifically some uh, archaeological discoveries that may you know, be verifying it, etc. And then we'll, uh, we'll keep marching through Exodus 12. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight. Thank you for your word and your truth. Lord, I thank you for this group of people, the delight that it is to study the word of God together. Lord, to have the camaraderie of fellow believers. Lord, the desire to know your word. Lord, to not just know it, but to obey it, to believe it, to share it. Because Lord, we we do live in a world 
even the quote-unquote Christian world that is so quickly abandoning core biblical teachings and uh, denying basic divine characteristics. And Lord, there's, it's concerning. And we ask that you would help us, Lord, to, to see through that, to be able to, to hold to the truth of the Scripture, to be balanced, as, as Rhonda said, to be uh, as balanced as we possibly can be and to understand the, the Scriptures best we possibly can, but, but then nonetheless to hold to it tenaciously, to, to say that thus says the Lord and, and that settles it. Lord, we ask that you would give us that sort of attitude to look to your Word and to be strengthened by it. Lord, we, we pray for your guidance as we continue to study Lord, the, the book of Exodus, as we contemplate these ideas of divine retribution and wrath that we talked about this evening, the idea of uh, service and commemorating and keeping and remembering, and Lord, how we do that through, uh, Lord, the, the Old Covenant, New Covenant, the Passover, Lord, Sabbath, Lord, the importance of the New Covenant tokens of the Lord's table and baptism. Lord, as we contemplate these, these important truths, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to apply them to our lives, that you would give us, Lord, hearts that as we gather, as we fellowship one with another, as we enjoy time in your word, as we participate in the Lord's table and witness baptisms, etc., that, Lord, you would give us that heart that would renew our, our covenant loyalty to you, that we would remember what you've done for us that we would remember your glorious deliverance that you achieved on the cross. Lord, we pray that you would just continue to instruct us to be our guide. Lord, we pray your blessing upon this weekend, the marriage conference, and Lord, the church service, and then we pray for Keith Flint's memorial service, that that would go smoothly and go well and be a shining light, Lord, to all who come. Lord, we just commit each of these things to you, and we ask your blessing upon them in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.